and the suggestion that I was aware of any collusion with the Russian government to undermine the integrity of our democratic process is an appalling and detestable lie. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Those are my favorite kind of lies. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI 92.9 FM, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU 88.5 FM, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM, in Palinville, New York on WLPP 102.9 FM, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling episode of the Bradcast coming up. Our friend David Dayen with a whole bunch of stuff that is going on in Congress and at the White House that is not related to the Trump-Russia investigations that have otherwise transfixed the nation of late. He'll join us momentarily to discuss the GOP effort to do away with banking regulations that were put in after the 2007 crash uh, to push through their deadly Obamacare repeal plan. Yes, that's moving through the Senate. And, oh yeah, to sell off, to privatize public assets as part of the Trump Republican infrastructure plan, which I know, Desi Doyen, you are a great supporter of. (laughs) I am a supporter of infrastructure. I am not, surprise, a supporter of Trump's infrastructure plan. Yeah, Uh, it's not really an infrastructure plan at all. Well, no, it's better categorized as a scheme, frankly, in my opinion. Or a scam. Some people might say scam. Well, you might. We'll see what David Dayen has to say about that coming up. But first... It was Attorney General Jeff Sessions' turn today before the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee. His turn to speak to uh, questions about his own involvement in the Russia investigation, despite being officially recused from that investigation, and to talk about what role he played in the firing of FBI Director Jim Comey, who was overseeing that investigation. The attorney general, uh, in his opening statement, came out swinging, adamantly denying any wrongdoing with regard to Russia and condemning scurrilous attacks on his character. He vehemently denied any undisclosed meetings with Russians regarding the 2016 election. He vehemently denied any third meeting with the Russian ambassador, as has been reported 
that following last week's closed session with Senate uh, with the Senate Intelligence Committee with uh, the fired FBI director James Comey speaking to them and reports coming out afterwards that there was yet another meeting that may have happened uh, between Jeff Sessions and uh, the Russian ambassador. Sessions, however, vehemently denied that. He vehemently denied acting inappropriately in regard to his recusal from any matters related to either the FBI's investigation into the Trump-Russia matter or the ongoing special counsel's probe into same after Comey was fired and uh, special counsel Robert Mueller took over that probe. Sessions said it was an appalling and detestable lie to accuse him of colluding with Russians in any way. Let me state this clearly, colleagues. I have never met with or had any conversation with any Russians or any foreign officials concerning any type of interference with any campaign or election in the United States. And the suggestion that I participated in any collusion, that I was aware of any collusion with the Russian government to hurt this country, which I have served with honor for 35 years, or to undermine the integrity of our democratic process is an appalling and detestable lie. That was from Jeff Sessions' opening statement before the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee on Tuesday. Uh, He went on to explain that the reason he had recommended to the president that Jim Comey be fired was because of problems with Comey's leadership at the FBI and his handling of the Clinton email investigation last year and that the FBI needed a, quote, fresh start under the Trump administration. Most controversial, however, I think, was uh, Jeff Sessions's refusal to answer any questions concerning his conversations with Donald Trump, even though the president himself had not invoked executive privilege prior to uh, prior to the uh, the hearing today. Sessions cited instead a longstanding policy of the Department of Justice to not discuss conversations with the president. A number of senators challenged Sessions' refusal to reveal private conversations with the president before Trump had the opportunity to review the questions. This is essentially what Sessions was saying, that, um, well, he might want to invoke executive privilege on this stuff, so I'm not going to talk about it now. So he was essentially uh, refusing to answer some questions to protect the president's right to declare executive privilege in these matters in the future. Now, that seems novel to me. It also seems uh, to have been uh, novel uh, as it was regarded by a number of the senators, at least the Democratic senators on the panel. Uh, And uh, independent Senator uh, Angus King also asked about this as well. Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico accused Sessions of impeding justice, of impeding the investigation, essentially of obstructing justice by refusing to answer questions uh, before the panel, even when Trump himself had not invoked executive privilege. It is not a legal standard. Can you tell me what are these longstanding DOJ rules that protect conversations made in the executive without invoking executive privilege. It's the judge, my judgment that it would be inappropriate for me uh, to answer and pr- reveal private conversations 
with the president uh, when uh, he has not uh, had a full opportunity to review the questions and to make a decision on whether or not to uh, uh, approve such an answer. There are two investigations here. There is a special counsel investigation. There is also a congressional investigation. And you are obstructing that congressional delegation uh, investigation by not answering these questions. And I think your silence, like the silence of Director Coates, like the silence of Admiral Rogers, speaks volumes. I would say that I have consulted with senior career attorneys uh, in the department. I suspect And they believe you have. this is consistent with my duties. That was the exchange between uh, Martin Heinrich, uh, senator of New Mexico, Democrat, and Jeff Sessions. Sessions also went on to claim that he has had nothing to do with any decisions that regarded the Russia investigation in any way, that he has recused himself from such matters. So when he was asked about his involvement and recommendation for the firing of Comey, he stood by it, saying it was not about Russia at all, notwithstanding what uh, Trump said shortly thereafter on NBC with Lester Holt. But rather, it was about Comey's failure in the Clinton investigation into her private email server and so forth. However, when he... When he announced his recusal earlier this year, he actually said that he was recusing himself from anything to do with either of the campaigns last year. But he didn't have any problem talking about Comey's handling of the Clinton investigation during the campaign last year. It's almost like he's created a double standard for himself. He did, uh, because that obviously that investigation obviously affected last year's campaign, at least uh, on the part of Hillary Clinton, to say the least. So, yeah, he did seem to want to have it both ways on that score. Uh, Senator Mark Warner, Democrat of Virginia and the vice chair of the committee, asked about the reports and the rumors that have been circulating over the past 24 hours or so that Donald Trump is considering now, incredibly enough, firing special counsel Robert Mueller, who is overseeing the investigation in the place of the now fired James Comey. Do you have confidence in Director Mueller's ability to conduct his investigation fairly and impartially? Well, first, I don't know about these reports and have no um, basis to to But I'm asking you, sir, I'm asking you. Validity. Um, I have known Mr. Mueller over the years. He served 12 years as a FBI director. He, uh, I knew him before that, and uh, I have confidence uh, in Mr. Mueller. So you have confidence he can But I'm not going to... Uh, discuss any hypotheticals or what might be a factual situation in the future that I'm not aware of today because I know nothing do about you, the investigation. Uh, do you believe fully me, recused? I've got a series from, of questions, sir. Do you believe the president has confidence in Director Mueller? I have no idea. I've not talked to him about it. So, hmm, sounds like he's uh, leaving open the idea that uh, Donald is. Am I imagine? Did you hear it that way? Yeah, as well, I, I heard it, it that way like too. And it was interesting because Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein would be the person who would have the authority to fire Mueller. But that would be, of course, assuming that President Trump would ask him. And then what would Rod Rosenstein do? Would he resign? Would he do it? So we get into some other questions down the succession line at the Department of Justice. It would be interesting to see what Rosenstein would do in that situation. 
Uh, no doubt. And, uh, well, actually, Rosenstein did, uh, was before uh, one of the uh, committees uh, today and uh, said that he would only do it, he would only fire him if, if the president asked him to do so. He would only fire Robert Mueller for, quote, good cause. Well, what would that be? That well, would be the question. We will find out, I'm afraid. We'll see. Uh, in any event, uh, essentially, Sessions was leaving it open that Trump might or at least could fire the special counsel who, you know, replaced uh, Comey, re- uh, replaced the FBI director in overseeing that investigation after he was fired by Trump. And so maybe Trump will fire the next guy. We'll see. We don't know. There was a, a somewhat heated exchange when Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, asked Jeff Sessions what Comey might have been referring to last week during his testimony when he said that uh, uh, before Sessions had officially recused himself from the Russia investigation. There was reason to believe, according to Comey, that Sessions would have to do so soon, that he would have to recuse himself soon due to some problematic concerns uh, that he saw in uh, Sessions' involvement in the matter. That line of questioning touched a nerve with the attorney general, uh, in which you can hear in this exchange with Senator Ron Wyden. General Sessions... Respectfully, you're not answering the well, question. Well, what is the question? The question <laughs> is, Mr. Comey said that there were matters with respect to the recusal that were problematic and he couldn't talk about them. What are they? Uh, that, why don't you tell me? They are none, Senator Wyden. There are none. I can tell you that for absolute certainty. We can, we can. You tell, this is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me, and I don't appreciate it. And I've tried to give my best and truthful answers to any committee I've appeared before. And it's really, a, 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 people are suggesting through innuendo uh, that I have been not honest about matters, and I've tried to be honest. A secret innuendo he is being accused of uh, there, and he was uh, the attorney general pushing back strongly against that. Uh, One other point for now. Uh, Sessions, the attorney general of the U.S., said during the uh, testimony that he has never received a private briefing on the alleged Russian cyber attacks during last year's election, that he only reads about it in the papers, essentially. Now, as far as I know... His recusal here would be from the investigation into Team Trump's alleged coordination with Russia on the matter, if if any, but not the alleged intrusion itself. Um, so, in other words, the, the charges that Russia was some in some fashion or another cyber hacking our elections um, that I presume he would be able to look into, he'd be able to investigate, he would be concerned about, frankly, whether it was Russia or any other country or any American hacking into our elections. Yes, just on a counterintelligence basis. But despite all of the concerns from the intelligence community about that, uh, apparently he never received any briefing on this at all since he's become attorney general. And so this seems, you know, another place where it seems, at least to me, no matter how one feels about that matter, whether it's overblown, whether it's being covered up or anything else, as attorney general, it kind of seems remarkable to me that he has not 
even been briefed on this, that he hasn't attended a meeting uh, about this since becoming the attorney general. And one more point. Apparently, I lied when I said one more point. This really is one more point. One other point here. Uh, Sessions was asked about whether there was a White House audio recording system. He said he did not know. So the mystery of whether there are actually audio tapes of the private conversations between Donald Trump and James Comey, as Trump himself has suggested, that remains a mystery for the moment. Now, I think he was bluffing. Trump was, but I don't know uh, if he wasn't bluffing and he and there are tapes. He will need to turn those over, I should think. And if he destroyed those tapes, that seems to me would be an even more explosive issue, uh, a hugely explosive issue. But I uh, think, frankly, it's at this point, it may be safe to, to think that the most explosive possibility may be the one that actually comes to pass. <laughs> I don't I don't know if that's fair or not. Uh, so we'll see. The issue of those uh, tapes remains out there for now. All right. Uh, all of this, um, all of this uh, in the Senate, these investigations, uh, many have said that, oh, this is just a, a distraction. Republicans say this is a distraction from the more important issues that we ought to be looking at. Some Democrats have uh say that this is a distraction that the Republicans favor, that they want, um, because it's allowing them to get away with a whole a lot of stuff. Now, not in my opinion. I'm fairly certain that the uh, GOP at this point, uh, and certainly the Trump White House, would prefer to not have these hearings, uh, frankly, uh, and this distraction. But in the meantime, it's working out well for them anyway. In a number of ways, as they push forward legislation to do stuff like, oh, gut banking regulations, appeal, uh, repeal the uh, Affordable Care Act. Yes, in the Senate, that is still moving forward. Pay attention, people. And uh, and in their continuing efforts to privatize as much of the federal government as they possibly can. We'll talk about that and much more with my guest, David Dayen, coming up after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com donate. And thank you. Not so funny. Monday, Monday, Monday. Always Sunday in the rich man's world. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, yes, it has been a busy week or two, to say the least, with the continuing mayhem in the wake of the firing of FBI Director Jim Comey and the congressional hearings in response. 
Uh, but while all of that has been going on, Congress has been moving ahead or at least trying to with its agenda to roll back regulations to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Yes, the Senate is moving forward with their version of the Republican House's so-called American Health Care Act. And the Trump administration tried, tried, we'll see how well they succeeded, to reset their own agenda last week by declaring it Infrastructure Week. Did you know that? Were you out celebrating? Uh, does Infrastructure Week come earlier and earlier each year? In any event, uh, Trump's version of Infrastructure Week meant that, among other things, uh, the administration announced a scheme to privatize the nation's air traffic control system, taking it out of the hands of the FAA and essentially selling it off to the big airlines because, well, I guess that's something that America has been clamoring for. In any event, just today, for example, the uh, while the nation and the, the media have been transfixed on Jeff Sessions's testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee, another hearing in the Senate Finance Committee with almost no media present was taking place in which the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin appeared to renege on his previous promise that he would not support absolute tax cuts for the wealthy. Last year on CNBC, Mnuchin had asserted that the Trump tax reform plan would not include a reduction in the tax rate paid by the wealthiest Americans. But at the hearing today, which few have noticed, uh, when he was asked about that previous pledge, Secretary Mnuchin said, quote, our focus is on getting tax reform done to figure out what meets the president's objectives, what meets the House and Senate so that we can get something signed into law and there will be compromises along the way. So, well, there you go. So much for that previous pledge from the Treasury Secretary. Now, I have heard it charged that Republicans are very happy with all of these congressional and special counsel investigations into the Trump-Russia matter and all the fallout related to it uh, and the news media's obsession with those continuing investigations. Some see those uh, probes as a distraction from what Trump and the Republicans are doing policy-wise behind the scenes. Frankly, I don't suspect they are that happy about all of it or that they are purposely causing these, uh, these so-called distractions. But the argument could be made that they are certainly making the best of it while the nation is otherwise looking the other way. One man who will not look the other way, who will not be distracted and has been documenting what the Republicans and the Trump administration are up to while everyone is watching the shiny hearings in the uh, in the House and Senate is our friend David Dayan, financial journalist, contributing columnist at Salon and The Intercept, a weekly columnist for The New Republic and The Fiscal Times, author of the critically acclaimed Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, and David is also the well-deserved winner of the Studs and Ida Turkle Prize. David Dayan, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. All right, thanks. It's, thanks for having me. Sure, I'm uh, glad to have you. i, I got to tell you, it is very hard to stay focused on what actually matters because it all kind of matters at the same time. Uh, <laughs> frankly, uh, but we had this huge election last week in the UK. I shared some of your thoughts about it with listeners last week, uh, and it was a disaster for the Conservative Party and Prime Minister Theresa May in the UK. Uh, and what seems to be very encouraging news for the Labour Party and its leader, Jeremy Corbyn, and the big turnout by young voters 
that seems to have made the difference there. Uh, but I'd love to get your quick thoughts on what we might take away from that election, both for the U.K. and what it may mean for the uh, for U.S. elections, if anything, going forward. Right. Well, I mean, I'm not uh, I didn't spend time in London during this election campaign, which was, you know, they're mercifully short compared to ours here in the United States. Yes, they uh, are. A six week election. Um, but my understanding of the way the British press treats Jeremy Corbyn is uh, as as it's like Hillary Clinton times eight. Uh, <laughs> he is he is seen as as unserious, silly, uh, a, a disaster, someone who would destroy uh, not only the Labour Party but Britain in general, uh, and and is just demonized by every news outlet in in Britain. So the fact that he was able to notch labor their largest gain in a general election in something like 30 years, Mm -hmm. uh, mainly by just running on the issues. And it wasn't about Brexit so much. It was about the manifesto. You know, the way that it works in Britain is they actually put out a a policy platform, each party, and people read it, and they, and they pay attention to it. And uh, uh, the, the conservative party platform was seen as, as a real mistake. They, they wanted to cap long-term care insurance. They called this, uh, uh, labor ended up calling this the dementia tax. Right. Uh, and that was a, a real disaster for Theresa May. Uh, by contrast, Jeremy Corbyn's labor uh, manifesto was, you know, it called for free college tuition after, uh, which was where Britain was in the past, and then college tuition soared, and they have a similar student debt problem that we do here. Uh, it called for, you know, nationalizing the rail system again, and 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 ter- going back to a, a lot of these policies that they had 20 years ago for mm-hmm. the rise of Tony Blair and New Labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people responded, and, and they, they appreciated it. And uh, labor ended up you know, denying the conservatives a majority in the House of Commons. The conservatives now have to align with uh, a Northern Irish party uh, in order to get that majority and, and be able to govern. And uh, it, it looks very fragile. I mean, Theresa May's uh, future in, in Britain is, is not a, a done deal or a given thing. And if there's another election, there, I've seen polls where Labor's already leading if there's another quick election that comes up. And so uh, uh, I, I think the lesson is, is that you, you run on, on things that people can tangibly experience. And, and people are ready and open to a broader range of policies than they might have been in the past. And uh, when you put it out there and say, this is what our party wants to do for you, you might get people to actually respond to that, rather than running a politics of sort of negativity, Mm -hmm. talking about the other side. You can run a politics that says, uh, this is what we want to accomplish for the people of this country. And, uh, and, and lo and behold, uh, people uh, actually want to work for something like that. Imagine that, uh, running for something instead of against everything. What do you make very quickly of the comparison? And I think it was sort of stitched into your answer there, maybe already, but um, 
The, yeah, the media, uh, the, the British media had been beating up on Jeremy Corbyn uh, and Labor Party for a long time. It sounded to me a lot like the way the U.S. media beats up on Bernie Sanders and Corbyn's uh, uh, agenda, frankly, sounded a lot like Bernie Sanders in many ways. Do we yeah. take any I mean, lesson think, from that? Yeah, I think that uh, they're both seen as out of the narrow range of the possible in in politics, whether it's American politics or British politics. They they aren't within the consensus, and therefore they are to be ridiculed and and marginalized. Mm-hmm. And I think what the voters have said consistently is that they they don't want they want them another mm-hmm. another set of ideas in the debate uh that they want jeremy corbyn to to come out with uh you know some 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 policy prescriptions and and they want to be able to reach on to those and the same with bernie sanders and and of course bernie's ideas have become almost preeminent within the democratic party so uh i i think you we you know what we've seen is that certainly young people are much more eager for a very liberal politics. Yep. And it, we're sort of in this transitional moment where we have all of these young people who are attracted to uh, ideas on the left, but they aren't, there aren't leaders that are mature enough to have, have risen to be national figures. So they're latching on the kind of old lefties, like in their 70s, yeah. like Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders, uh, eventually that will turn over and there will be young leaders who will carry this torch forward. But I think it upends what we think about the, the mainstream, what is mainstream and what is mm. consensus within uh, politics. And I, I think we have to recalibrate our thinking. Uh, yeah, in, in one sense, I think the argument can be made that uh, Trump's victory itself is uh, evidence that the media need to recalibrate uh, their thinking on just about everything when it comes to uh, what voters actually want and don't want. Speaking of what voters want and don't want, let's move back here to uh, what is uh, what looks like a, an attempt by the Republicans to g- gut Dodd-Frank. Now, before we get to what's actually being done or not done about it by congressional Republicans, David Dayen, uh, can you briefly explain uh, what is Dodd-Frank? It was enacted in the, uh, of course, in the wake of the global economic meltdown and the banking right. scandal of 2007. But what was what was Dodd-Frank meant to do before we talk about what Republicans want now to do to Dodd-Frank? Well, so Dodd-Frank was a reaction to the financial crisis, uh, as you just uh, referred to. And it, it really sought to, well... Uh, I, I think in mainly it started to respond to the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, there was uh, a lot of desire to do something to re-regulate the system, uh, which had sort of not really faced any major overhaul in something like 70 years to that point. Everything had been deregulatory from the time of the New Deal, mm-hmm. and there was this desire, you know, after a scandal and after a crisis that you, you have to do something uh, and so Dodd-Frank was sort of a, 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 a bill that was a promise to write regulations later uh, to, uh, you know, a, a, a try to shore up the parts of the system that were bad. There were, there were some very decent elements to Dodd-Frank. It created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which 
took consumer protection from like six different agencies and, and, and centralized it and streamlined it and put it as the mission of just one agency, for example. Uh, it uh, enabled the increase of what are known as capital requirements so that banks would have to raise the funds to pay for their own losses instead of putting that, that payment on the taxpayers. Uh, it sought to prevent bailouts through giving the FDIC greater tools to unwind very large uh, mm -hmm. uh, financial institutions in the event of a collapse. Uh, there are a ton of things in Dodd-Frank, and it's hard to really summarize right. what it all does, but uh, you know, it was you know, a little less uh, aggressive than what maybe a Bernie Sanders would have done or an Elizabeth Warren would have done, but it sought to respond to this crisis, look at the system, what are the weak points within it, and try to shore those things up. So moderate response, moderate regulation, yeah. really, to, to that uh, massive crisis in 2007, and yet the Republicans... Uh, they have been seemingly complaining about it ever since. What is their central complaint, as far as you can tell, by the Republicans regarding Don Dodd-Frank? Uh, then we'll get into what they tried right. to do to it uh, over this past week. Well, it's funny. Their central complaint is that it's crushing community banks and credit unions. I mean, if you, if you really listen to Republicans, mm -hmm. that's the main thing they lead with, is that Dodd-Frank is destroying community banks and destroying lending. Is it? Out there. Uh, community banks uh, have been on an unbroken trajectory downward in terms of bank closures uh -huh. from 1984 all the way to today. 1984 was 26 years before the introduction of Dodd-Frank into the picture. Uh, community banks are, are drying up because there's massive consolidation in the financial system. Mm -hmm. uh, we have big banks that are, you know, 50 to 60 percent of the entire assets of the country, uh, and you're talking about four to six big banks. Uh, that is why you have this consolidation, these rural towns uh, where you're seeing lack of opportunity in all other ways. Yeah, I think the banks are going to suffer from that, too, because they've thrived, you know, when the economy thrives. So uh, as far as lending drying up, this is not true. Uh, what community banks are left are actually doing pretty well. Um, uh, certainly we see record profits in terms of the money center banks on Wall Street. Um, they, they, the real argument that they're hiding, uh, the Republicans, mm -hmm. is that they just don't, uh, you know, the, their benefactors, which is the financial industry, doesn't want to pay the cost of complying with regulations. So they make up stories about how regulations are, are, are stunting lending or, or hurting the growth of the economy when they're all patently untrue. Imagine that. I, I, uh, not, not my Republicans, David Dane. Um, <laughs> so what they did was, while everyone was sort of looking at the, the Comey hearing uh, last week uh, and now Jeff Sessions uh, this week, uh, they passed in the U.S. House what they call the Choice Act, which stands for Creating Hope and Opportunity for Investors, Consumers, and Entrepreneurs. Uh, so <laughs> I didn't even know that. That's, uh, that's a good one. Yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? Um, I, I, it makes me want to vote for it. Sounds fantastic. Uh, what, so, but what did they actually pass? What is the Choice Act that did pass, as I understand, in the U.S. House? 
um, as the first step towards rolling back Dodd-Frank. It did pass in the House. It's a big ball of deregulation. Uh, It it, uh, essentially rolls back or eliminates many of the key provisions of Dodd-Frank. And the choice part of the Choice Act, this is is the part that that really kills me, Uh, it, it gives, it purports to give banks a choice. You can either live with the system we have today, or you could raise your, this gets a little technical, but it's called the leverage ratio, Mm -hmm. which is the amount of liquid assets that you hold as a percentage of your total assets. Uh, The more debt you have, the more dangerous you are as a bank. Uh, because you can't cover your losses. So uh, that's what a leverage ratio is. And that's what killed us in 2007, right? There was a downturn in the market, and nobody had the the money to pay. The assets were down, and they didn't have the, you know, and and they were getting margin calls on all their debt, and Mm -hmm. they did not have the assets that were liquid enough to actually cover those bets. And so the taxpayers had to cover them. So it's not a bad idea to raise your leverage, Mm -hmm. Uh, but what they say is that if you just do this, if you put this leverage ratio at 10%, then you don't have to follow most rules in Dodd-Frank. That's, that's the choice of the Choice Act. Uh-huh. The problem with this is that there's no enforcement for that leverage ratio. So uh, the way that the Act works is it, you, you say, okay, I want to do a 10% leverage ratio, and then I, I get exempt from all these Dodd-Frank uh, regulations. What if your leverage ratio comes in at 8% or 7% or 6%? You have a year to fix that. And uh, so basically it gives you the ability for 11 months of the year to not fix that and do whatever the heck you want, then change your, your capital plan at the last minute, uh, go back to a 10% leverage ratio for that one moment in the year, where you're being examined, and then go right back and, and, and yo-yo back out of the, so, the trade. So, that, so if there's no enforcement, then it's not a choice at all. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a free pass for a bank to do whatever they want. Yeah, I was going to say, the choice in the uh, for banks, anyway, in the Choice Act sounds like to uh, choose your own regulations or not. Either way, yeah, it's up to you. Adventure. Exactly. So is there is there any chance that this will pass? You you no. argue that this will not move anywhere beyond, beyond the U.S. House. Now there is no chance that this will pass. Uh, the, but, but the why Senate do you say that? Let me. Completely disinterested in it. The Senate is. Not only is the Senate uh, the the White House appears to be uh, the the Treasury Department just yesterday issued a uh, a report on regulations and Dodd Frank mm-hmm. and. This report was mandated by an executive order that Trump signed, and in it, uh, they, you know, they had to refer to the Choice Act because the House had just passed it, and they say in it that, that you know, we should consider uh, this off-ramp where, where, where banks can, can uh, exempt themselves from regulations with a leverage ratio, but then they attack the very idea of a leverage ratio. They say that this would encourage risk-taking. They say that a leverage ratio would uh, uh, be problematic for mm-hmm. deposits. It would, it, they, they, they create this parade of horribles around a, a leverage ratio, and then it was clearly inserted later. They say, and if you want to do this thing that the Choice Act does, that'd be okay. Yeah. So, 
I don't even think that, that the Treasury Department wants anything to do with this Choice Act. The, the, the point was almost sort of uh, to show lobbyists and things that this is, uh, the, 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 you know, that we're trying, we're working on your, your problems. Meanwhile, what the Treasury presented is a host of ways that you could effectively gut Dodd-Frank without ever having to go through Congress. You can do it through the regulatory process mm. and just sort of change the various uh, uh, rules that, are, that have been put in place through Dodd-Frank, and you can do that at the agency level. So uh, you don't have to touch Congress at all, and you don't have to worry about getting 60 votes in the Senate. I mean, the problem with the Choice Act is that no Democrat would ever support it. No Democrat supported it in the House, and none would support it in the Senate. And if, in the Senate, that's a problem because... Democrats only uh, Democrats have 48 votes, and you would need at least some of them to flip uh, in order to pass the entire Choice Act. You might be able to pass one piece or two through the reconciliation process, but you're never going to pass the entire Choice Act so long as Democrats have more than 40 votes. Uh, well, my you know my only concern, uh, and, and you write in the Nation when you wrote about uh, what the Republicans are trying to do here, that congressional Republicans have full legislative control in Washington, but no legislative accomplishments, and that seeds the playing field for governing almost entirely to Donald Trump. So, I, true. so what you mean is, for example, the Treasury Department can then, on its own, sort of begin deciding which regulations to. Uh, uh, Absolutely, to and they're already not. doing it. They've, they've literally laid out the roadmap for what they're going to do to roll back a host of, of Dodd-Frank uh, policies that were put in to in, ensure the safety and soundness mm. of the banking industry. And, and so uh, I, I think by unilaterally, uh, uh, the Treasury Department and, and its fellow banking regulators can, can really increase risk in the financial system without ever having to go to Congress for a vote. That is disturbing in and of itself, but uh, the idea that they might be able to get this through the Senate anyway um, is also concerning. And, uh, well, if you look at what they're doing with health care, that's just one of the reasons to be concerned. Let me take a quick break, come back with David Day and ask him about that uh, and about the great and mighty infrastructure week that Donald Trump declared. Uh, did you even know that? We'll find out after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't go away. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yep. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking with David Dayan, financial journalist. Uh, and I want to ask him about Donald Trump's plan 
to privatize the air traffic control system as part of his infrastructure scheme. Uh, but before that, David Dayen, uh, we, we were talking about uh, this attempt in the U.S. House to roll back the Dodd-Frank banking reforms and and your belief that uh, it will never pass the Senate, that uh, the Republicans can get it through the House, but they cannot get it through the Senate. And that may be. My only concern uh, or, or question about uh, your, your assertion is health care. And if you take a look at health care, a lot of people as uh, the uh, affordable, what is it called? Affordable health. No, the American, American health care Act. Act. Yeah. yeah. As that passed the House, everyone said, well, OK, it passed the House, but it will never get through the Senate. It now looks like it's getting through the Senate, David Dan, or at least they're going to be right. have a vote on it before the end of the month. Well. I, I always thought healthcare was a, a bit of a different animal. First of all, it was so politically fraught that, that Republicans really had to do something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, they, they staked their entire political careers on, on repealing the Affordable Care Act, right? So that's number one. Number two is uh, healthcare, much more so than financial regulation, has this budgetary impact. Mm-hmm. And it can be passed through this thing called the reconciliation process, mm-hmm. which requires only 50 votes in the Senate right. as opposed to 60. So that's the big difference, is that you can, you can move health care because it, it is, so much of it is involved with the budget. You can move health care through that 50-vote process in a way that you really can't with, I'd say, 80 to 90 percent of what's in the Choice Act. All right, let's move on to infrastructure here, because I know everybody has been waiting to talk about infrastructure. Happy infrastructure Week. Yes, uh, and to you. Uh, so it's getting so commercial. It is, isn't it? Uh, and Every actually, here I think that the, the Infrastructure <laughs> Week forum is going to come down my chimney and give me an environmental impact report about a new major highway. Uh, but actually, David Dayan, it is getting more commercial. Uh, it, that's exactly what the, the Trump seems to be doing here. That is true. Every, I know. Everyone is paying attention, as I said, to the to the Comey mayhem, uh, and you know, and that that's a big distraction from what. Uh, you know, Trump and the Republicans are doing. But in fact, Trump announced that they would be, you know, investing, investing. And I put this word in quotes in this new, huge infrastructure plan. So they kicked off infrastructure week by announcing they're privatizing the nation's air force. I'm sorry, air traffic control system. Yeah. And you suggested, uh, I think it was over at the fiscal time that that may tell us everything that we need to know about Trump's plans to right. reform I mean, infrastructure. Trump's, Trump's plans for infrastructure are, are indistinguishable with privatization. That, that's what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. This is about selling off these core assets that we all paid into and invested in for years and years, whether it's our highways, our water systems, in this case our air traffic control system, and selling them off to essentially a group of Trump's friends and, and hangers-on, mm. and uh, then, you know, paying the price for that in higher user fees, whether it's toll roads, whether it's higher fees for your water system, mm-hmm. whether or your electricity, or whether it's uh, a higher passenger fee uh, to pay for the air traffic controller system. And is that, uh, is that what would happen here? The airlines likely. will be taking over the air traffic control system rather well, than the FAA? They, they want to put it in the hands of a nonprofit company, and that's what they say. 
uh, to manage the air traffic control system. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what efficiencies that would actually bring to take it out of the FAA and into this system. Which but, is already nonprofit, the FAA. Right. So, <laughs> so they want to put it in the hands of this nonprofit. But the the people that would sit on the board of this nonprofit, uh, disproportionately, those would be representatives of the major airlines mm-hmm. and the major airports. And mm-hmm. what that would do is, I mean, if you think about the air traffic control system, what it does is, is manage the routes by which are these large uh, companies, uh, airlines, fly uh, every day. And we know that the top four airlines in America, Southwest, United, American, and Delta, control 80% of the routes. Mm-hmm. So if you think there's ever going to be any competition in the, in the airline industry ever again, if you sell off the air traffic control system and those four big airlines are essentially calling the shots of who gets what routes, you know what what airline what airports across the country are served i think this would be a tremendous loss for anyone trying to compete with the big four airlines and for smaller airports as well uh their their priorities will simply not be met and then the the other big difference in in this privatization is the way in which the air traffic control system would be paid for uh they right now there are certain fees uh, passenger fees that go towards paying for air traffic control, go towards paying for the FAA, and those would be changed. Uh, but there are ways to shift that cost onto the passenger uh, and away from the, the the actual airlines. The airlines could have a fee too, um, and the way in which that would get done. Uh, Delta Airlines, believe it or not, put mm-hmm. out a study that showed that if you uh, privatize the air traffic control system, passengers would pay something on the order of 15 to 20% more than they do now uh, for that system. And I think Delta is like the only big airline that is against this uh, proposed plan, for as that I understand reason, it. Because yeah. they've actually looked at it and done the work and realized that this is going to charge their passengers more, and that might have an effect on their business. Now, David, I don't fly much, uh, so maybe I don't know, but do we have actually a real problem with our nation's uh, air traffic control infrastructure? I wasn't aware that this was... I mean, I, I open a paper every day, and we, we aren't having planes bash into one another right. on a daily basis, right. at least. Um, the, the American system is actually one of the, the world's safest, um, it does use somewhat antiquated technology. It uses radar as opposed to GPS. Mm-hmm. However, that is being upgraded. In fact, uh, Congress has already passed uh, the legislation that would move towards uh, what is called a next-gen system uh-huh. to uh, upgrade the air traffic control, and that, that is going on right now. If anything, the problem is that constant you know, problems with the budget and potential furloughs, potential shutdowns, things like that, creates uncertainty. And the, the uh, presumed remedy for this is to privatize the air traffic control system. I would think the remedy for that is to stop messing with the budget, <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. the Republicans have done yeah. 
for the last several years. It's like they're breaking it, and then their solution to fix it is to privatize. Yeah, no, exactly. We've been working on, uh, we've been reporting on what what's going on with our, our national parks, our national monuments, the complaints from the uh, Interior Secretary that, uh, you know, there's just millions and tens of millions of dollars in backlog for maintenance right. on those parks. And here's our new proposed budget for the Interior Department where we slash the budget. So right. uh, it, it's it, and if we only privatized it all, that would take care of it somehow. Uh, so, David, uh, we got just a minute or two left here. Is this the is this the big infrastructure uh, proposal that was supposed to be during the campaign? It was, oh, this is the one thing where Democrats and Republicans can agree, or at least Bernie Sanders Democrats and Donald Trump Republicans can agree, a big bipartisan effort to spend on infrastructure. Is is this it? Privatize everything? Is that the effort? Essentially, uh, uh, they, you know, this is supposed to be a trillion-dollar plan for infrastructure. Uh, what, we've, what we've learned is it's now actually just $200 billion of investment over 10 years, and uh, that's supposed to be used for these public, you know, it would be sort of the federal component of public-private partnerships. They would give this federal money so that uh, local and state governments would partner with some private partner to uh, manage and, and construct new infrastructure. There's also an idea of doing this thing called asset recycling, which is something out of Australia, actually, where they encourage states and cities to sell off private assets, whether it's the water system or... Uh, you know, some other income-producing item that is in the hands of the city or state government. Uh, and if they sell it off, they would use that proceeds to build new infrastructure. So you're just trading one asset oh, for another. Uh, you know, sell your parking meters, sell your, you know, your gas system, or, or sell whatever. Um, and, you know, we know that, that, that so many uh, of, of Trump's, friends and, and colleagues and investors are, are building this war chest for this. Blackstone, which is the biggest private equity firm in the world, uh, Stephen Schwartzman is the head of Trump's economic policy advisory team. They just put together a $40 billion war chest for infrastructure, and $20 billion of that, um, uh, $20 billion of that comes from the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So that's who's going to buy our infrastructure. That's the Trump plan. Yeah, I you know, and I saw that you had uh, reported on that a few days ago, and I was just gobsmacked by it. I remember the, the remember people freaking out when uh, what was it? Dubai was going Dubai to buy all our world. ports, exactly. And I now know. you've got what is it? Twenty billion dollars. Twenty billion dollars to infrastructure. buy American infrastructure from Saudi Arabia. By Saudi Arabia, what could possibly go wrong? Writing at the uh, Fiscal Times, David Day, and you note uh, in regard to this uh, air traffic control scheme and all of the infrastructure schemes that uh, seem to be going with it. Uh, it's really more of a fire sale, a chance for corporate interests to expand their dominion over the country by gobbling up common assets that taxpayers built. Yep. That's just about sums it up, I'm afraid to say. Yep. And uh, it, I guess the last question I'll leave you with, David, w w does this happen? Does this move through? Or is this just one more piece of the Trump Republican agenda that they speak about, but that it never actually comes to pass. Right. Well, Democrats, I think, have seen the light on this thing. If there was any chance that there was going to be some bipartisan uh, working together on infrastructure, I, I think that's over. 
so it would be very difficult for this to get done, but you, you, you really never know, especially because this is, you know, it has a budgetary impact. You could see this getting through, or you could see this being a chip to get something else through. Uh, you never know. And I, I think in this case, and I think actually in all of these cases, it pays to be pretty vigilant uh, about making sure that uh, Democrats, you know, stick with their, their constituents on these things. Uh, and make sure that uh, Republicans are really fought on these ideas that they have for the country. You can find the ever-vigilant David Dayan's work at Salon, at The Intercept, at The New Republic, at The Fiscal Times, or you can find much of it indexed at his own personal website, davidayan.tumblr.com. You can and should also follow him on the Twitters at ddayan. Always great catching up with you, my friend. Hope to do it again in the near future. All right, Brad. Thank you, brother. David Day, an author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. You should go buy it and you should go read it. Okay, we got to get out. But uh, before we do, the uh, there was a weekly meeting of House Democrats on Tuesday, and it apparently, according to The Hill, erupted over stark disagreements about how the party should fight President Trump. Congressman Michael Capuano of uh, Massachusetts, he's a, a leadership ally. He stood during the Democrats' closed-door caucus meeting to denounce Congressman Brad Sherman's impeachment push, called it a selfish maneuver that could hurt fellow Democrats and candidates at home, according to at least one source in the room. Uh, apparently, uh, Brad Sherman has now uh, drafted at least one article of impeachment for Donald Trump. Wow. Uh, for obstruction of justice. And uh, there is talk that he could bring it forward in a, um, uh, well, essentially a motion that forces the entire House to have to debate the issue. So you don't have to wait for Republicans, by the way, to bring up impeachment. Democrat can do it on their own. There are some a, procedural um, triggers that he could pull, it sounds like. Uh, yeah. And uh, apparently, as we have been talking about over the past week now, Democratic leadership is against it. They want to let the investigations all move forward. Uh, but some of the folks in the rank and file, particularly, uh, well, I guess uh, Republican, well, I was going to say uh, California Democrats in any event, uh, are pushing for uh, the impeachment here. Brad Sherman, uh, who we've had on this show. But I shouldn't say California Democrats because Nancy Pelosi is on the side who is against moving this right. forward. You could say perhaps the aggressive progressives are the ones that are actually trying to pursue this and pursuing it sounds like more aggressive policies returning to what David Dayan was referring to about how young people, young voters seem to be more engaged with these more direct, aggressive, moving forward progressive policies. Well, if you ask the voters, uh, 48% of them are in favor of impeachment, only 41% are against it. So, I don't know, maybe we ought to start listening to the voters i got to get out here uh in any event my we'll talk about it tomorrow we'll try to open the phones my uh thanks to our producer desi doyan to my guest today david dayan and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us if you missed any portion of today's broadcast or any other you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com i hope when you're there you'll stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to stay on your public airwaves 
while they're still public, uh, to do whatever the hell it is we do here. Thank you. Uh, you can also uh, drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you can find me at simply the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.